0: Hello and welcome to this week's installment of Nucleus Investment Insights. My name is Mark and I will be the host of today's webinar. Today we are discussing whether we are witnessing the shortest commodity super cycle, which was seen contrary to the media and markets who have been reporting high demand growth and high commodity prices as a result. For those of us who are not in the know with the jargon, Let's define what a supercycle is. A supercycle is defined as a sustained period of expansion driven by a demand for products and services. To put it in context, a commodity supercycle would therefore be seen as rising commodity prices driven by sustained demand and possibly unexpected demand for these commodities due to supply-side shortages, shortfalls. The evidence that high commodity prices have affected returns is easily seen in the news and company forecasts, for example. Saudi Arabian Mining Company has reported a 52% increase in sales from the same period last year. The CEO of this company believes that these prices will continue for the rest of 2021. The CEO of a leading commodities trading group has stated that the commodities could have high prices for a decade or longer as we have started a new commodity supercycle. Glencore, a large commodity mining company has reported another year of bumper profits from its trading business and the news continues. So and here to share their thoughts on whether we are really in a commodity supercycle or not. We have today, David Llewellyn-Smith, Chief Strategist at Nucleus Wealth and Damien Klaassen, Head of Investments at Nucleus Wealth. Before I hand over to you gentlemen, a quick housekeeping message, a quick reminder before we get started, if you haven't already done so, to please do subscribe to our YouTube channel and click the notification bell. And be notified when we put up new webinar to watch or alternatively follow us on your preferred podcast platform. For those who are listening in live, feel free to drop in your questions in the YouTube live stream chat and we'll have them answered as we go along the way. Over to you, gentlemen.
1: Thanks very much, Mark. Uh, So uh, I've just lost my... uh presentation here for a moment. I'll quickly reopen it. Okay, so yeah. Uh, So the agenda for today is, uh, we're asking the question, is this the shortest commodity supercycle ever? Which is a little bit facetious uh, because basically we don't think it was ever a supercycle to begin with. Uh, and so it, it's more it's fairer to say that it's just a typical super, uh, commodity cycle and we're starting to see how that plays out uh, so there there are even, four.
2: Even worse than that David you know if you're sort of talking super cycles you know I think that, that the commodity supercycle for um, uh, for the China you know pretty much doubled the the capacity um, the, the amount of actual volume that 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 uh, the mining companies were putting out, whereas this latest run-up, um, basically all the commodities have either been going backwards in terms of volumes, or, or just very slight increases in volumes, and 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 prices shooting up on the back of, um, you know, reopening demand and and supply chain problems and things like that. So. Yeah, I think we've, we've written a fair bit on that in the past. We won't go too much into that, but it's it's that that whole idea that, you know, to me, very much a super cycle is a period in which you have this brand new source of demand come out, whether it's, um, say, the rise of Japan and, you and, and, um, know, or, or uh, back in the 60s there was sort of like a, a commodity super cycle as, as you got uh, a lot more women into work and a lot more um, a lot more housing, housing and you got the whole baby boomer demographic coming to the right um, the right um, phase or the rise of China over the sort of the the, the, the early part of this millennium you, you saw a genuine increase in the amount of these commodities that was needed whereas um, you know all the talk we've had recently is basically on the back of um, you know very slight increases in demand
1: yeah. Quite right, uh, and so we've, what we've been arguing all along is it's just a typical cyclical recovering commodities, and will <laughs> therefore play out with typical cyclical patterns. So to look at that in greater detail through today, we're going to do four sections here. We'll be looking at the macro, uh, the current macro setup for commodities, uh, China in particular being so central to commodity global commodity demand. Uh, Excuse me, and then finally a a closer look at commodity dynamics, in particular in microeconomic terms, uh, to see how those first two uh, uh, influences are going to play out at the coalface, if you'll pardon the pun. Uh, So, first up, if we uh, if we push through to our first page, which is uh, the macro category, uh, basically uh, a number of different Investment banks over the last six months uh, have kind of invented this, this narrative of commodity supercycle uh, in part by arguing that what we're seeing is a step change in uh, developed economy stimulus, uh, by which they mean <clears throat> things like we're seeing in the US with the Biden stimulus, uh, which will add infrastructure demand ongoing for the next six to eight years. Uh, and they're expecting more of that kind of thing to transpire in uh, economic supply-side stimulus across developed worlds. Uh, and that is a new source of demand that we haven't seen for the last couple of decades as uh, as fiscal prudence has ruled the day. Uh, however, uh, many of the, these arguments are quite poorly structured uh, and they, they uh, pretty much ignore two factors. That is, one, even if you aggregate you know, lots of this stimulus in developed economies, it's still not very big in terms of any boost to commodity demand. And secondly, uh, if you look at China, which is such a massive consumer of global commodities everywhere, almost any metal you look at, it's about half of seaboard demand. And with iron ore, for instance, it's upwards of 70%. Uh, then China's still all that matters demand even if there's some some new marginal sources in developed economies if China's going to slow and its demand fall away then it's absolutely going to swamp the developed economies and that's pretty much our outlook is for China to keep slowing and its commodity demand to keep diminishing or rather uh, plateau and diminish over time just as its development its development model, in the long-term sense, is maturing and moving away from commodity-intensive growth. So uh, <clears throat> for the time being, the macro setup in China is that they've been tightening credit. Um, and if, if we if we got the uh, chart up there somewhere, fellas, I, I assume we do on, on yep. uh, YouTube or whatever. And I, what, I've just picked a, a very basic and easy-to-read chart about um, China's new yuan loans, which is new credit. Uh, and this is, these, these two lines are last year and this year, and you can see that uh, this year is tracking much lower than last year. Uh, you know, At the moment, it's down roughly 16% year to date, uh, which is just an immense amount of credit. If it continues on at this rate, we're going to see more than a trillion dollars uh, of credit uh, not appear this year versus last year in China. And the most credit-intensive area of the Chinese economy is of course the most commodity intensive area of the chinese economy which is property and infrastructure so excuse me so that tells you immediately that uh you know the the number one macro input into commodity prices uh for the last 20 years which was a super cycle uh is slowing dramatically in a cyclical sense Uh, and so that means demand this year is going to fall away very quickly uh, from the levels we saw last year, so that's an enormous headwind as we just uh, start and kick this discussion off. Uh, if we if we look more broadly and globally at the macro setup for commodities, the second second biggest kind of input in, into commodity prices uh, is more uh, is actually financial, uh, and that is the U.S. dollar plays a big role in commodity prices. Uh, when the US dollar is rising, commodity prices are typically falling because they're priced in US dollars. Uh, and it's always the reverse. When the US dollar is falling, commodities are typically, typically rising. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So at the moment, we have, you know, US reopening after its COVID shock and, uh, you know, recovery, stimulus and recovery. Uh, and it's it's started to gather quite a bit of economic momentum uh which has got the fed looking at taper uh tapering uh, quantitative easing relatively quickly it should begin uh certainly before the end of the year if not the beginning of the next quarter uh, and um that's got you know a pretty reasonable bid under the us dollar now uh we actually do see the us economy slowing relatively quickly later this year and that that will become part of this discussion later on but for the time being the fed is moving in this direction uh it's clearly going to taper i don't think a lot of the doves on the fmc board really want to but you know there's a kind of hawkish revolution going on at the fed uh, and they are going to push towards taper Uh, so that gives you you know chinese credit falling credit growth falling away pretty sharply and a rising U.S. dollar. Now, those two factors together are quite a difficult macro circumstance for commodities. Typically, uh, obviously, because you've got eroding fundamental demand, and then you've also got eroding financial demand. Uh, so that 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 sets you up for a a relatively difficult, a relatively strong headwind to begin with. Then we can and add it the fact probably that probably means higher uh, U.S. dollar.
2: It <clears throat> probably means yeah, higher US dollar, weaker yen, which is sort of the more, yeah, makes it more uh, expensive. Weaker for, yuan, you mean? Sorry, weaker yuan, yes, which makes it obviously, which makes it more expensive for, for China to buy these commodities, which then sort of brings the prices down as well.
1: That's right. And and that's, <clears throat> excuse me, partly, I think, why they haven't cut any you know they have started easing back from their credit tightening a little but they're doing it only very slowly uh, and the, one of the reasons why is because if china just does nothing at all and commodity prices fall it's actually stimulating its economy because its terms of trade start to you know roar upwards in the complete inverse of what we see in australia uh, where Commodity prices go up, our terms of trade give us an income boom, whereas if it, in China it's, it's actually in a huge income drag and it's the reverse when commodity prices start to fall and that lifts nominal growth as well as a number of things for China. And so uh, they're not in a hurry to see that end. So now we have a couple of other more positive stories to tell for commodities, one of them being the European reopening where vaccines are going well. Uh, and there are, you know, supports around the place already for whenever we see hiccups in growth, uh, the Fed is tightening. But, of course, we have, you know, Biden, Biden infrastructure stimulus coming through, etc. Nonetheless, uh, our basic view here is that in this kind of circumstance where you have China, China's economy slowing very quickly as it tightens credit and a US economy growing well enough, Uh, well enough to to generate sufficient inflation for the fed to be a little hawkish and removing liquidity in those circumstances excuse me you typically end up with a macro uh, circumstance that uh, is deflationary in general as commodity prices fall and then you can end up into kind of self-fulfilling cycles because uh, emerging markets in general start to suffer, not just China. Uh, if its currency, the yuan, begins to fall away, then that puts pressure on other emerging market market uh, trade balances, as they have to compete with this China, this competitive China getting more competitive, and the rising US dollar puts a lot of pressure on emerging markets, capital accounts at the same time. So you have this double blow to, it, to emerging markets. And so uh, the global economy gets into a, a deflationary bust uh, pretty quickly in these circumstances. Uh, now that's not to say that that blows back right through all markets uh, and you end up with contagion in developed markets, equities, etc. but that is a risk, it does happen. Uh, for instance, in 2015, you know, we saw a reasonable falls in equities eventually from, you know, a very similar setup to this, uh, but for the time being, what we're, we're basically arguing is that we're odds on for a commodities bust at minimum in terms of the macro setup. Uh, so so that uh, brings me to our second kind of uh, influence here. If we turn the page and...
0: Uh, David, if you want cut in just for a second... Uh, we have a question here from Darren who's asked, if the U.S. raises rates, will that force the RBA's hand to also raise rates early?
1: Uh, the PBOC, uh no. I mean, they, uh, the, the Chinese Central Bank... Uh, is facing a, a, a quite difficult situation here in that a lot of the credit slowdown that's happening there is not monetarily based, it's based on regulation, things like macroprudential, uh, new rules and regulations for different sectors, um, especially property and infrastructure. Uh, and so it, there's, it's, even though it's got high-ish, high-ish producer inflation, it's got a low CPI, in China, still only about 1%, uh, and uh, I think that by the end of this year, early next year at the latest, the PBSA will probably be forced to cut interest rates. Uh, now, this is where it, it would come back to that question a bit later, because that that gets you into a really difficult situation in macro terms. If the Fed is tightening and China is loosening, uh, then you can get a falling We mentioned yuan with a rising US dollar, and that gets you into real kind of commodity bust circumstances. Uh, So, but no, the PBOC won't be raising, it'll be cutting, is the answer to the question. So, thank you. Uh, back to back to sort of section two, um, which is a closer look at China and uh, what it's doing and why. And this is kind of what we've touched on already, uh, in terms of uh it's it's very large role in commodities demand but but and as well what i just mentioned where it's tightening credit through various different uh regulatory mechanisms uh and this is this is a process that's been going ebbing and flowing as we know since xi jinping came to power uh in what was it 2011 uh for a decade or so we've ebbed and flowed between uh you know China trying to sh- Trying to shake off its old investment model, which is very credit uh, centric and very commodity centric, and trying to push towards you know greater value add and consumption, etc., etc. The great Chinese rebalancing. So we've had a number of different attempts at this. Uh, from in 2012, we tried 2015, 2019, and again today, where they try to structurally reform the economy away from those old growth drivers and towards uh, you know new and new more value add stuff and households etc so what that's achieved over the years is some successful reforms uh, and for instance I've listed probably the, the most the two most important that are, <coughs> are in place right now and there's in the 2015 uh, I look, most of the infrastructure in China which is the key to commodities one of the keys to commodities uh, is delivered through local government borrowing Uh, before 2015 most of that borrowing was on bank balance sheets they used to you know have these policy large policy banks that would lend to local governments and the danger in that of course the banks being being also publicly owned was was just massive corruption graft misallocated capital all incentives are wrong because you know you've just got everybody trying to Trying to lever, you know maximize their own take uh, to hit GDP targets rather than making good investments with a return. Uh, so in two thousand and fifteen, the major reform legacy or from the two thousand and fifteen reform period, the major legacy was to shift that local government borrowing from bank balance sheets on into bond markets, uh, which in theory <coughs> and probably in practice brings <coughs> excuse me greater discipline to the borrowing. Because you don't have uh, it's more transparent, <coughs> excuse me. So you have you know a, a, a myriad eyes in the bond market looking over each issuance and deciding whether or not they want to fund this or that rather than just you know, uh, just two mates, uh, t- two mates together in a pub, two mates together in a, in a in a, the CCP equivalent of a pub, <laughs> whatever yes. that happens to be. Uh, and so you get greater discipline. Uh, and so that's now been running for, for six years and it's been quite smooth, it's been very successful. Um, but it does pose a potential roadblock to the the sort of wholesale stimulus push that we see in in yesteryear. When, whenever China tried to, to wean itself off this credit, investment model uh, and growth would slow too much and it would panic and then just hit the button again and unleash rain credit on everything and off it would go and commodity demand would lift and when they build millions of, of, you know, roads to nowhere and uh, empty apartments again. <clears throat> yeah, so- and, and it's
2: worth saying as well, like, so I mean, one of the big problems in China
1: that, that China itself recognises
2: is this whole problem between um, how much consumption they have from, from, the people living in their their economy versus how much investment goes in. and um, they're currently sort of weighted more than than um, any other country's ever been towards the investment side. so so the problem is um, consumers over there don't make a very big part of their economy and and it's all about just borrowing and by um, and and investment by uh, it, by companies and and state-owned entities into infrastructure and to into into housing. And that's obviously not sustainable. You know, at some stage, you do need to let your your people actually go out and do the consumption, or you need to switch your investment into. Um, you know, there's only so many re- so many uh, bridges you can build across a river before um, you, you're starting to 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 lose productivity rather than gain productivity. And so, um, and they've realised this, but 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 it's that that problem that they have in terms of the whole economy set up to to to, to pump out more infrastructure, um, and when they do try and slow down. Unemployment starts to tick up, all the infrastructure companies and and all the people have made all this money from it, all um, you know, all the vested interests all arc up and, and start putting pressure to, to go back to the old model. And so sort of each time China tries to switch across and then things slow too quickly, and so then they reverse course. And so yeah, it's just sort of worth noting that that the structure of the Chinese economy is is very much um, in the wrong way. And and they they realize that and are trying desperately to try and to, to bring it across to be a more consumer-focused economy.
1: Yes, quite right. Uh, and that's what all these reforms were aimed at. Hmm. Um, so so, so in 2015, we ended up with, with local government bond markets, which was a great reform. Um, 2019's greatest reform legacy is still very much in train, and that is the three red lines policy for uh, property developers now they are just simple regulatory caps on on uh, property developer leverage uh, which uh, obviously inhibit um, the scale of growth that these property developers are capable of and uh, therefore is you know designed very much to weigh upon uh, the building of empty and wasteful apartments uh, now that that policy uh, is still playing out, and we see daily, uh, you know, new stresses rising from that one. Uh, I'm talking in, in particular about Evergrande here, uh, formerly China's largest uh, developer, and and now uh, its largest casualty, uh, with you know sort of 400 Australian million Australian dollar uh, billion Australian dollars in debt, uh, an uh, almost zero <laughs> enterprise value, and just leveraged to the moon and it's selling assets hand over fist to try and dig its way out of this hole. It had a slightly better week this week, but it's still really struggling to overcome it. So what we're talking about here are structural road bu- uh, speed bumps if China wants to turn around and and juice this credit again. Like if growth slows too much, there are actually some real clamps here that they will either have to completely reverse uh, and lose a lot of face, or uh, they have to, you know, f- turn a blind eye, or find a way around them. Anyway, the the upshot of that, the 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 point to take out of it is that these things will slow any response to the um, slowing economy. They're more difficult. Uh, their difficulties this time around if they're going to stimulate again, which was the whole point in putting them in in the first place. Not that they wanted to make it more difficult for themselves, but to make it more difficult for everybody because this is such a wasteful model that is slowly killing their economy. And then, mm. if they don't do it, as Damo says, they end up in something called the middle-income trap uh, where their economy bogs down anyway. Yeah.
2: And so the example is sort of 2011 2012 when they wanted to spend more they just told the banks go out and lend to local governments and and property developers go out and build. And um, and they and they would straight away whereas they can't do that any if they if they change their mind tomorrow or today they then need to say to property developers either yeah we've got rid of those rules or here's how to get around those rules, you know. Here's, here's a new way we've got for you to get money yes. to get around those rules. And um, yeah, right.
1: so so, 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 it's so it's certainly not so, not, a, not as easy as it once. Oh, it's very much possible. In fact, I think the base case is they probably will do it at some point. Because yeah. what always happens when they go through these reform processes, the economy slows far more than they're prepared to accept. Uh, and as Damo says, we get a bit of an uptick in unemployment. They start to freak out about idle hands in the population and revolutions against tyrannical control or dictatorial control, and and they juice it all again. So that's probably still the most likely outcome.
2: And, and which uh, one is Huairong wrong that, on that graph,
1: David? Uh, it's not on the graph. Uh, the, oh, sorry, on the, on the sorry, on the um,
2: on the the. the oh, David, it's just another,
1: it's just another example of hmm. you know a re- reform process that's underway in China. That's they're still determined to stick to. Where we hmm. have Rong who which was actually formed as a kind of bad bank for. Previous credit cycles that went wrong, uh, and it was there to resolve bad debt over time, but it, it ended up uh, becoming a corrupt uh, uh, source of bad debt itself over over many years, it, and and then its CEO you know made himself a billionaire before being having his head chopped off earlier this year, uh, but it it's another kind of example, as is Evergrande, where you have these very very prominent Chinese entities that are sinking on the back of these regulatory moves, and they haven't been rescued. Huarong uh, has not been rescued. And so it's a reflection of the determination of Chinese authorities to, to see this out this time. But then, as I say, we've seen this before. <coughs> they always appear determined. They just look more determined for the time being, and I still think that they'll likely freak out at some point. But again, it says, it says to us that the... Easing, which we've started to see, obviously as growth is slowing very quickly, we've started to see some easing. The PBOC has cut the triple R rate uh, and stuff, and there's been some talk trying to stimulate some more infrastructure investment, etc. At margin, uh, but it will be difficult. There are just these and these a number of these difficulties there that that show that A, they're determined not to do it, B, there are structures to make it harder that mean that as they do slowly turn towards more stimulus, it will take more time than usual and it will be more difficult than usual. So that obviously has implications for how far commodities can deflate in the short term. Now, the one kind of proviso I add to that is... Uh, you know, the cure cure for all evils in fiscal and monetary management these days is, ironically enough, uh, COVID, which gives you the fig leaf coverage you need to do whatever you want, anytime you want. So if the current COVID outbreak in China were to turn nasty at the moment, it's very small, uh, but there are some 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 reasonable, reasonably, uh, uh, reasonable scale lockdowns to deal with them already. <clears throat> but if that was to grow and become a sizable shock, then you know, some of the, a lot of these rules that we're discussing that are in the way could be more easily junked short term because you have the excuse of COVID, which is a free pass for government. Uh, so that's, that's a, a kind of upside risk to this downside base case that we're putting For commodities so that 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 gives you then so we've been through the macro uh, and and China as two big inputs and what that gives you in summary is falling demand uh, coming out of China probably demand falling further than it would in previous cycles as well and there's not enough, enough offset elsewhere to to change that so that's our basic setup. So the third section of this presentation is then to look at what that means for how commodities work, typically commodities markets and commodity economics. Uh, and this, this is microeconomics. Um, so basically in, in, um, in mining, there, are, there is something called a cost curve, which is simply that the price at which you can extract uh, your particular commodity or grow it at and uh, depending on what it is etc uh, how cheaply you, you can produce it and sell it for a profit and obviously that's going to uh, the curve is is just a reflection of who's the cheapest rising up to who's more expensive and but still profitable so what we call the least profitable end of that curve is the marginal the highest marginal cost producer. Now that's a very important part of commodity economics. If you have a circumstance with a surplus of a commodity, any commodity, then that's where the price goes as quickly as possible. Because to stabilize, the only way to stabilize the price is to put pressure on that high cost that highest cost marginal producer. Well you and- want them to stop
2: it's, you, you need those guys to you, stop
1: producing. You need them to stop producing, exactly. That's how you balance the supply and demand equation if you have a surplus, which is what I'm arguing is, is emerging in a lot of commodities. Uh, and so uh, what is really interesting about this one and and harks back to what Damien said at the beginning of this presentation about what is a super cycle in commodities. In a, in a super cycle, you will typically have either such demand a huge demand shock or a supply shock, but there's not enough, depending on which way you want to look at it, that you've got many, many years of high prices. And then over that period, new producers come in at higher production costs. And so you end up with higher marginal cost producers uh, and you get a a much more expensive cost curve over time. That's what will happen in a super cycle. This, this time around, what we've seen is so, so swift, it's only gone for, what, six to nine months, uh, that, and it's really been driven by, you know, very short term cyclical pulses. There's been no time whatsoever for new supply or producers to come on stream. And so we're operating with the same cost curve that we had when we actually began the price spike. Um, Which means, for instance, as an example, in iron ore, which is a picture of the cost curve I've got up here from 2020, which will remain roughly accurate, uh, the highest cost marginal producers in iron ore are below $100 a tonne. So, at the moment, iron ore is sitting just above 160. uh, And if you have a surplus of iron ore emerging in the market, then there's only one way to stabilise the price, and that is to push it down to the top end of that curve. So, in other words, it has to fall below $100. Uh, that's just basic supply and demand economics. Uh, that is commodity economics
2: 101. Yeah. But to but <laughs> put that in, in context as well, so so when we had um, sort of $200 um, iron ore prices back, uh, when was that? So 2012-ish, was it, David? Um, yeah. And and you had all these these extra commodity all these extra iron ore ones. There was there was all these small iron ore places all over the all over the map in Australia, and a lot of them were hadn't built um, train lines or anything. They were just literally trucking the uh, the iron ore out, which is much more expensive than having a train line. And so what that meant was, as the price kept on coming down, it was those guys that would be closing down their their businesses and and going okay, we have a mine, um, but but we're costing $150 to get this out or we're costing $100 to get it out. And, and so as the price would fall out, they would drop out, which would then make it um, you know, stabilize that price. Whereas what Dave is saying is now there isn't anyone who's pr- producing at $150 now. There's nobody producing at $120 or $100 because um, they're all the mines that that from um, had to be operating at sort of 50 and $70 um, uh, iron ore prices, you know, just a few years ago, so that they, you know, there's a completely different cost structure, and you just didn't have time for those other ones to, to appear, and so they're they're not there now to cushion the cushion the blow as as um the commodity price falls.
1: Exactly right, uh, and in fact, all of these low cost producers, not all of them, but uh, two major ones at least, Rio and and Vale, uh, and some other Brazilian producers are are actually ramping up their very low cost production, uh, in part some of it coming back from previous accidents etc. And so there is a supply response coming in that's very cheap. Mm. Uh, and then on the other hand, you have China also scrambling to produce more of its own iron ore, for instance, as well as other uh, materials. Recycling. Um, uh, recycling. But, mm. the, you know, because of their other strategic issues with supply chains that are at risk from Cold War 2.0. There's another impetus there and they're using tariffs and stuff like that to, to ensure that their local production is competitive even though it's, it's actually really expensive on these cost curves. So they're starting to distort the market in that sense. So, so that's iron ore in a nutshell and that's why we're so bearish on iron ore and it's played out uh, if anything more quickly Expected, although only by perhaps a couple of months, um, we're down sort of 70 bucks from the peak already, uh, Mm. with what looks like another 70 to go. uh, But but not
2: not particularly reflected in stock prices so far.
1: uh, Not so far, no. In fact, Mm. uh, BHP is higher today than it was when iron ore was at $230. (laughs) Mm. So, I mean, some of that is simply because the equities didn't rise as much as the iron ore price did. Um, they discounted this happening. Uh, but we think the iron ore price has got a quite a long way to fall yet. And as a result, those equities are going to get smashed. Uh, so <laughs> that's the iron ore story. Uh, the same story I, we think applies to oil. Uh, it's not as dramatic. Um, the run up in oil was not, a, not as theatrical. Uh, uh, David, if I could cut I'm in for right a second. Why uh, sure is a question a
0: over question. here that says, uh, TS says, do you suggest that we have a surplus in the future? About to undergo electric vehicle and renewables revolution at any price? While we have huge shortages in tin, copper, etc. Basically, we have in a, inelastic supply. Darren was also asking if we anticipate deflation a disinflation or inflation in the next couple of years. Mm. And uh, do we see a okay, commodity so... cycle? In this a is related, uh, with com- uh, involved in going carbon neutral, with many countries committed to. Oh yes,
1: well, yes. Well, we're we're just coming to that. That's quite convenient. Uh, oh, okay. So I'll, I'll I'll address that in a moment if I can. Sure. Um, so firstly, oil. Uh, you know, oil uh, shot up to. We were nearly at eighty dollars. We're now down around seventy. Uh, the marginal sort of highest cost marginal producers in oil are down around 50 uh, in U.S. shale, and and so uh, as Chinese demand comes off in in that space as well, uh, plus OPEC has already agreed to 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 return an, an enormous quantity of oil over the next 12 to 18 months. Then there's Iran, etc. In other words, we think that there'll be an oil surplus relatively soon. Uh, and then it will be forced down to its highest marginal cost production around $50. And, okay.
2: and having said that, oil has got a, a slightly different, um, well, quite a, quite a different market makeup in that oil wells um, deteriorate quite quickly. So if you're pumping a million barrels a day from an oil well, um, and it's a shale oil well, quite possibly next year it might only be half a million dollars. Half a million barrels a day. Um, some of the bigger ones, you know, maybe only decline sort of ten percent or so. But there is this natural decline built into it. Whereas that that's not the case in in um, in the metals. The metals you, you tend to be able to keep producing at the same rate or, or higher for mines until you finally stop. Um, yeah, there's a, you know they will have a certain mine life before they finish up. But but you don't have that natural decline every year after year that you sort of see very much in the oil sector.
1: Yeah, uh, I and mean, there are other offsets in oil that may, make me less confident about that uh, outlook as well. The bullish offsets, for instance, the global reopening, and if travel gets going, etc., lots more jet fuel and things like that. Mm. So there are, uh, you know, it's possible. I think oil has very much peaked, but it's possible that it could flop around between, you know, 50 and 70 or, or even 60 and 70. Uh, yeah. And the yep. other thing, so OPEC, than, obviously. <clears throat> yes, and then there's the OPEC risk, of course, as well. Oh, if yeah. we get down to 50, OPEC would we, almost certainly start to jawbone it back up. Or, um, or
2: cut and cut production, which is which is different, whereas uh, the, the, or the it iron ore,
1: yeah, It it'd be, might be difficult for it, though. It's pretty, mm. pretty complex politics in there at the moment. But the point is, yes, they may act. Mm. Um, okay, okay, which brings us to base metals, Um and this question of the super, the EV or, or decarbonisation supercycle. Um, uh, in the short term, the China question applies almost as much to base metals as it does to iron ore. Uh, if China's demand is going to fall uh, significantly in the next six to 12 months, then uh, that's going to affect copper very much in the same way as it does iron ore. Uh, you know the the, the decarbonisation push is is sort of years ahead, uh, uh, so I wouldn't expect that to have much influence over the kind of forces that we're describing here.
2: But I think more importantly, though, <laughs> is is just worth putting that into context as to what you expect from from the decarbonisation. So if if you've got yeah, if you Let's want to look
1: if... longer term, then yes, yeah.
2: But but if you've got even if you've got quite bullish expectations, say on electric vehicles, and you say, okay, I, I think electric vehicles are going to have you know hit 100% ex, um, uh, penetration, so all the new cars sold will all be electric vehicles. Um, say within um, yeah by two early 2030s, you're talking about a 12% increase in the amount of copper needed. Like it's not it's not it's not that much. It's like one percent per annum extra copper that needs to come on. Like there really isn't a um, uh, it, it, it's it's this part about people say yes yes there's, there's, there's this great boom coming on and you're like yeah there is but copper the, the amount of copper needed is actually just not that big as as compared to the amount of copper needed to say um, for for building how all the houses in China with all the uh, the the piping and and you know, electrical systems and all that <laughs> type of stuff that go into it um, it's just not that big. And then the other part, the other issue with um, the whole electrification is saying, well, do we end up with a centralized um, uh, system like we like we have now, where you go, uh, there's these the, you, massive solar farms and everything, and they've got to pump um, electricity long distances to to to, um, to to cities, and in which case, then you, you you could certainly make a case for for needing a bit more copper. Um, But but if we're actually going to a decentralized system where you've got sort of local regions that that sort of have uh, battery power and sort of they produce a bit of wind power, a bit of of solar power, um, but they're not actually hooked up to the rest of, um, say, Australia or the rest of the US, it's just sort of very localized systems, then the amount of copper might um, might actually fall in terms of the number that you need. Like you can actually recycle all the the existing sort of um, longer – all the existing sort of – Uh, infrastructure that goes into producing uh, electricity and sending it such huge distances that we do at the moment. So I guess what I'm saying is I'm completely on board with the whole, there will be a a transformation of the electricity grid. I'm completely on board with the whole idea that yes, we'll be moving to electric cars over a certain period of time, but just doing the numbers on it, it, they're just not that big as a percentage of the total amount of copper that gets used.
1: Yes. Uh, Okay, so... So in short, we I guess we sort of see we certainly see a, super, a decarbonisation supercycle. We just don't really see a commodities supercycle coming out of it. Is how we sum it up. Um, I mean, the other thing is the the scale of ramp up in demand that Damien's talking about is rather steady and manageable. Uh, yes supply is inelastic but for that kind of scale of ramp up, ramp up one really big mine is going to make an enormous difference it's not the same as the doubling trebling quadrupling of demand that we saw in the china super cycle from various inputs for instance uh, it's just not same scale of demand so uh, <clears throat> we think that one's pretty manageable as well uh, so that brings us to our final uh, uh section for today's oh, actually,
2: actually sorry quickly david i should talk um quickly lithium as well so no, lithium yeah. lithium is a metal that um isn't you know will make a huge difference if we have if we have all these batteries it will make a huge difference to the amount of lithium that's actually needed um but the flip side with lithium is uh it's actually a the way it's mined is either through the salt these salt flats or through the, some of the, the hard rock uh, ones you have in, in, in places like Australia. And it tends to need to be mined very similar to the way you'd mine iron ore. And what that means is that um, you actually get these really big mines with with very low costs, very low um, per unit costs that tend to dominate the scene. And so what, what we're looking at for lithium is there's plenty of lithium out there. Yes, um, we haven't got enough to produce it at the moment, but, um, you know've we've, we've actually had a huge ramp up in 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 lithium demand over the last five or six years and for most of that we saw the, the falling of the lithium price and and because what it is what it's basically about in the lithium area is saying one big mine comes on that'll that'll take care of the next few years worth of Worth of demand and sh- and push prices right back down, and then you'll see prices sort of go up until you get the next big mine comes on, and then they'll then they'll they'll um, plummet again, and then you'll sort of be back onto the next cycle. So for lithium, um, yes, there's positive signs over the longer term. But you really want to be careful that you're um, you're playing that cycle as as looking at when are the when are the the, the miners coming on and when are they producing these big mines because um, that's what's really going to drive it. It's going to be a very very typical commodity cycle that you're going to see in terms of those yeah in terms of the the, the cyclicality of the price there.
1: Okay, so that brings us to uh, our final section for this. Uh... Which is uh, investment implications and what we're doing with our own portfolios. Uh, and what I guess it boils down to for me most pointedly is you know, we're currently caught in a, in a kind of titanic tug of war between US inflation and Chinese deflation. Uh, so whoever's going to win that battle is really going to set the asset allocation agenda for the next, say, 12 to 18 months. And uh, as you can probably appreciate from this presentation, we think that China is probably going to win. Um, In part, it's going to win because all the factors we've already described, but it's also about to get a helping hand from from the US Fed, which... I basically think it's moving too early with its taper uh and as a result you know as we discussed earlier in the presentation if that presents the world with a rising us dollar just as china trying to to def- heavily deflate commodities uh then you can get into feedback loops that really crash prices very quickly uh, and then that's obviously going to combine with this uh uh, kind of diminishing inventory cycle we've had through the COVID reopening and it'll send a, a tsunami of deflation outwards from China into the global economy. Um, now, we saw, we've seen this kind of cycle play out twice before, once in 2012, once in 2015 uh, <clears throat> and China won both times, basically. Uh, 2015 is the is the really uh, useful analogy where uh eventually commodity prices fell so far that they you know the fed at that time was trying to raise interest rates in the us that the anyway eventually the chinese deflation blew back via emerging market contagion and currencies uh, and falling yields elsewhere and a rising us dollar blew back into us equities and eventually forced the fed back away from tightening so uh I'm not sure if it goes that far this time. All I can point to is that that, that that the settings are the same. And so we're going to see similar dynamics play out for the time being. And the Chinese deflation will will prevail by and large until it uh, reduces credit, if it's going to. I'm assuming it will ultimately do it, be forced to, because it'll be spooked by a growth scare of some sort. Uh, but we'll have to wait and see on that front. So that, that gives you, you know, more of a deflationary context than it does inflationary over the next 12 months or so. Um, uh, and it also means that the recent bull market that we've seen in Chinese bonds is very likely to continue. Uh, as I already mentioned earlier in the prezo, I think PBC will actually be forced to cut interest rates, uh, like the actual uh, prime lending rate, which is the equivalent of the cash rate, uh and probably multiple times um, because it's going to be difficult for fiscal authorities to lift these regulatory constraints they've put around themselves in terms of using infrastructure and real estate uh to stimulate again so that you know gives you a falling yuan which again is a very deflationary force in the global economy Uh, and Will, that will put pressure, you know, uh, I, I guess somebody asked me earlier, will, will uh, the Fed force the PBOC to raise rates? It, it'll actually be the reverse. The PBOC will force the Fed to stop raising rates, or at least that's one possible way that this scenario plays out if it really gets moving. We're certainly moving down, down that path is what I'm arguing. Uh, so so that gives you, um, you know, Chinese deflation beating US inflation, Uh excuse me, the Chinese uh, bond market driving uh, certainly its own yields lower and it's been leading global yields as well. This is the major reason why the US uh, yields have been falling uh, over recent months when so many kind of bond bears have been out there saying, you know, yields have got to go up because of the US economy. And that's certainly going to clash with, you know, a lot of that, that the Biden stimulus and the drive for the Fed to tape no doubt about it it's going to be quite a struggle uh, but I think that the ultimately the uh, Chinese yields probably win that battle <clears throat> excuse me at least for the time being you know and I'm only talking over the next 12 to 18 months once you get past that you know maybe China finally juices enough credit or and all the Biden stimulus starts to flow through uh, this more serious uh, kind of um, hard and soft infrastructure uh, stuff that they've got planned, uh, etc. And if the if the COVID reopening goes well as well, and and so you can get through these things uh, perhaps after twelve or eighteen months. Um, so getting if you've got those uh, deflationary uh, kind of backdrops, then moving into the equity market. Uh, you know, what kind of factors will be at play in terms of determining, uh, you know, which segments do best uh, it's, it's a volatile scenario. There will be, um, you know, periods of growth scares, etc. And so uh, we think quality plays well uh, and we're more oriented towards growth and growth quality than we are value. Values has been doing quite well over the last week or so. Since we had a good US jobs report, uh, it's not going to be all one-way traffic at all. But we think that the um, uh, growth slash uh, quality story is, is more compelling in this kind of deflationary, lar- very large deflationary backdrop um, for the next 12 to 18 months. Uh, yep. And then, kind of bringing that back to Australia, it it's uh, it becomes quite a difficult story uh, given iron ore is so central here, uh, and and the other bulk commodities which are also very high at the moment and providing some offset. In fact, uh, didn't go into that the coal and LNG etc. But we expect those to come down as well over time. Uh, and that you know we'll have an Australian reopening next year, whatever that looks like. Um, in terms of our <laughs> incredibly broken politics, not sure how that plays out, but you know the media. As we come out of that, whatever damage that does, we're going to be hit with quite an income shock uh, coming from our fall in terms of trade and falling iron ore, etc. Uh, which means I think that the RBA uh, is probably confronting a two-quarter recession at the moment, even before we get there. Certainly, it will rebound very strongly out of uh, current delta problems, uh, but we're going to have this income shock land on us through 2022, and and the moment that happens, Australian nominal growth gets hammered, the budget gets hammered, wages start to drain away, inflation disappears. We've seen this all before, in in kind of 22 to 2015, uh, and and so the RBA is forced to continue to support. The economy uh, and uh, in particular bond markets via its various QE mechanisms and uh, and so you end up with a much lower Australian dollar coming out of that because our, our own yields will be much lower than elsewhere in particular than the US yeah. and so that, that can give you uh, another hint about um, possible equity allocations in terms of uh, either getting getting some international stock exposure uh, where you see it integrating with these other factors and or buying US dollar earners uh, in Australia. Yeah.
2: I and mean, actually just just that sort of follows a little bit upon one of those questions earlier was was actually more about the RBA raising rates sort of following the US. And I think that's where, you know, what David was talking about there is that um, we think the US raising rates is, is or, or certainly tapering is, is probably a um, – uh, policy error. In terms of Australia, they've already started looking at reversing um, the taper they were doing because they've got, uh, because of the, the, the shutdowns and the lockdowns. So I think until you get some clear air on that, um, you're not going to see much movement at all from the RBA. Um, out the other side. So, you know, I guess we're talking six to nine months away at least. Then yep. um, uh, we think a lot of this will played out then and yeah, you'll be looking at, at different scenarios. So,
1: I mean, once you're into these, deflationary loops for Australia, if if this does play out, then uh, the lower interest rates is the only card the RBA has to play. I mean, if, if, because the problem is that uh, terms of trade shocks hit the budget very hard. uh, And so, you know, it becomes increasingly difficult to absorb them via fiscal um, spending. Um, you can certainly absorb it by allowing deficits to, deficits to blow out on lower lower revenues and they will do that. <clears throat> but there are constraints there that mean the RBA will have to play a role as well. Uh, and so I, I just think uh, that, that uh, you know we've got as Dungo says a taper that's being pushed back already then we get an income shock it's probably push push back some more. then the first cab off the rank, will be macroprudential, but you can't do that because with all of this going on, the only thing you've got left is domestic demand that's all hinged on this $9 trillion <laughs> beast of a housing market. Uh, and so, you know, they get, the RBA gets cornered, basically. It's very difficult for them to, to do any kind of tightening of substance at all.
2: Right. And so uh, I'm just to look through, looking through some of these questions, seeing if there's any others left there. So, so Samuel's suggesting after all that, the, the answer is leverage into housing.
1: So, <laughs> well, so, you, you could say that. I couldn't possibly call me.
2: <laughs> I think there's a, um, look, low interest rates, um interest uh, yeah, look, if we don't do macro-prudential, if we not do and I guess, David, you're, you're saying macro-prudential sort of not doesn't seem to be on the cards for anyone anytime soon.
1: Well, um, I mean, it was very definitely on the cards a month ago. Yeah, probably, and then we went back probably, into the lockdowns. Probably day. before year-end, yeah. then we're into lockdowns. Uh, hmm. fell those out last week or the week before, saying it won't happen now before the end of the year. Hmm. Macro-prudential. I mean, <clears throat> if we come flying out of the lockdowns by year-end and we get another reopening boom, and 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 maybe this commodity stuff plays out a little longer. Then we could end up with some macroprudential. Yeah, but, but it doesn't look likely at the moment. No, so, it's, it's and, not and, likely and at the moment.
2: And but. so so it does seem as if there is a there's a reasonable sort of unintended consequence of all this is like trying to keep interest rates low, trying to support all the economy, and it just means that. As with all assets, they're just central banks and governments are pumping as much money into this as they can, and and a lot of it ends up in the housing market, which is of course. But, but there's that, a lot of risk to that.
1: What I, what I might add is there was one other p- potential hope for housing, which was a labor victory. Uh, previously, uh, under the Shorten administration, uh, where there were lots of reforms proposed for housing that would have made prices cheaper, but uh, with with uh the Albanese opposition in control and and um basically, yeah, maybe, basically no, maybe
2: opposition's the wrong word the albanese Yeah,
1: the albanese morrison government, yeah, government <laughs> then, you know they're, they're, they're going to look to uh, to reboot immigration as soon as possible and 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 they're already talking first homeowner grants as the only way to make housing cheaper which of course only makes it more expensive mm. uh, and so i'm i'm you know, exhausted and horrified to report that, yeah, there's no hope of, of not a lot of hope on the housing front at the moment.
2: Well, of, so that, but lower I guess prices, I saying the lower price for, for more yeah. affordable houses. Yeah. But if, but in terms of, um, yeah, I think, as I said, I think we've spoken about before on the in the past on this is, is that basically for housing, what you want is is a bad rest of the economy, um, but not so bad that that housing market falls over. So you you sort of in that point where you got to look for that. Yeah, these, things need to be bad, but but not so bad they fall over. Because if things get good and and interest rates start to rise, then that's actually going to put a, a damper on all the housing market. So, um, yeah. but there is a, there is a sweet spot which you know looks like we're we're a reasonable chance to head towards where things are quite bad, but not so bad that that um, yeah that house prices fall because you get all this extra support. Um, US stocks was the other suggestion. Yes, that was that's probably where we're that's certainly where we're we're looking is um and not not necessarily US, certainly offshore. Um, US has got a problem in there that it's expensive, but um, uh, but still there's a lot of high growth stocks there, so so that tends to be where we sort of filter in. Um Yes, what perhaps, other
1: perhaps US demand rather than US stocks, like we do, we do, yeah, like to, to Europe for instance, uh, quite often to get better valuation on stocks that have exposure to the US.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, <coughs> yeah, what other distractions can government use other than property, property affordability? Now, is there much ammo left?
1: Um, distractions for to stay in power. Yeah, I don't know Open oh, the- a open question there,
2: but yeah, there's lots of distractions. There's- well,
1: there's one, there's one big one that's probably coming and that is uh, some more sabre-rattling with China, I suspect, and go for a car key election. I mean, that always makes for a very healthy distraction. Mm.
2: Yep. <clears throat> um, and so the other question then is... Uh, RBA Commodity Index shows that this cycle has been going on from the lows in 2015, which found a bottom in the 60s. And based (laughs) on the previous cycle, which started in the lows of the 40s, could we run more? I think we're pretty close to the top now.
1: Well, uh, I mean, the RBA, remember, is a monthly updated Mm -hmm. one. If you look at some private ones, uh, they've already fallen uh, away uh, owing to iron ore. But uh, as I said, the the two coals and LNG have been running hot on uh, on some supply side stuff but and and in particular some very hot weather in Asia and and in Europe uh, over the last month or so which has provided quite an offset um, but we just don't expect that to last very long and China's already on the move in terms of producing more coal uh, so uh, I think that they'll those those energy commodities will also deflate before very long, and and once they join in, then the uh, the RBA index is going to roll pretty hard.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, I think we've covered off all the questions over here, and uh, before we get into that, uh, let's see what is the question of the week. Mm-hmm. The viewer question of the week and we encourage you to put your answers in the comments box will china or the u.s win the inflation or deflation battle depending which way you want to look at it from and uh, we'd love to see your answers in the comments uh, section and uh, thanks again for all of those who've watched this live and for another great episode thank you gentlemen. And to those of you who have asked questions, I hope that you've taken some time uh, as some wonderful points to ponder away from this, and we welcome your feedback on the show. We'd also, once again, like to take you to take a moment to click like on the video show, and finally, if you know anyone who might get something out of today's episode, let them know about it, and share us with your friends and help our show grow. If you'd like to see more of our content, head over to nucleuswealth Wealth forward slash content, where you can see some of our previous webinars. We put these out on a weekly basis, pretty much. And to stay up up to date on news from us, uh, follow us on the social media channels. Thanks again for tuning in, from myself, Mark, and the rest of the team. We look forward to catching up with you at the next one. Have a great day.